0: Welcome to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher. By now, most everyone in the Roaring Fork Valley has heard about the Venezuelan refugees who are trying to find shelter from the storm of poverty, famine, violence, and instability that rages in their country. No one knows Venezuela's story of decline better than Jose Miranda, who came to the valley from Venezuela in 1998 to study solar energy at Colorado Mountain College. And for the next 20 plus years, Jose spent time in the valley and in Venezuela, working on his dream of building a viable water buffalo herd. I sat down with Jose in the winter of 2019 to talk about the desperate situation in Venezuela and the reasons he would never be able to call it home. What follows is a rebroadcast of that program in 2019. Jose Miranda's animal spirit is the water buffalo. He spent his life with them and always dreamed of taking over his parents' buffalo ranch on the plains of Venezuela. When he was a child in the 1970s, Venezuela was the richest country in South America with vast oil fields. But by the time he reached his teens, the price of oil began to drop, and his once rich oil-dependent country began to experience food shortages and unrest. In 1998, Jose came to the United States to study animal and ranch management at Montana State University. He was 22 and Hugo Chavez had just been elected president. When he graduated in 2001, Jose returned to Venezuela with his new wife and their dream of starting a family on the ranch. Meanwhile. Chávez's land reform program had just begun, and they were nationalizing ranches and subdividing the land. In 2005, conditions in Venezuela forced Jose's parents to sell the ranch. Jose and his wife and his son and his new daughter were in the United States at the time. Jose was studying solar technology at Colorado Mountain College, while his wife and children spent time with her parents. By 2008, Jose and his family prepared to return to Venezuela. I started our interview by asking him why they had planned to return. So when I went back to
1: Venezuela was when Chavez was on his last leg, and I thought there was a chance for things to turn around in Venezuela. So I went back, you know, with the intention of really helping change things around. It did not happen because... You know, the powers that were at the moment taking control of the government. Venezuela is run by mafias. And at the moment, you know, the Cuban mafia makes sure that uh, whoever took control of the government was one of their puppets that they could manipulate. And that's how Maduro got up there. So that was the time that I thought things could change. And, you know, at the moment, all, all the cheating that it was possible to do for the election, they did. It was not a fair election. And Maduro was the one that ended up in power then. It was a moment that also people were just devastated by the death of Chavez, and they, you know, he asked before he died, you know, vote for this guy, and they manipulated the whole psyches of the country to have this guy in control. After that, he's been harvesting everything that Chavez planted. It's what Maduro's been doing, harvesting that. He's totally unprepared for the position totally unprepared to run the country. What these guys are prepared for is to spread their rotten ideology all over South America, and that's what they've been doing. They're too busy running the mafias of the drugs from Colombia, the gold from the Amazon, um, and the the mafias that run the oil industry nowadays. It used to be nationalized uh, since the 70s. It was nationalized or way before then. Um and it was, it's what moved the economy. But these guys just ran the industry to the ground. And then whatever is left, they run it like if their personal bank account. So, yeah, when I went back, I thought things were going to change around. And it didn't. You know, things got worse is what happened. And um, we were living at the ranch, living off the land, trying to stay away from all the, the political situation and the violence and mm-hmm. that is happening mostly in the cities. But... Eventually, he caught up with us at the ranch. We were robbed at gunpoint at the farm, and I was really? tied down in front of the family, and they basically cleaned out and took everything they could. You know, Fortunately, it was just material things, and know, you- as soon as they were gone, I realized that it was time to get out of there, so I loaded my family in the plane the next uh, three days after that, and I stayed behind for about a month, just you know, closing up all the business that I had, and that was it. I knew it wasn't going back because it really had, it, it, everything just got out of hand. You know, the crime and the inflation, the shortages of food and medicine, and these guys have no planning sites to solve it, right? There's been no investment in maintenance of any infrastructure, no investment in new infrastructure. So everything is just run down. As long as people are too busy staying in line to find food and they cover their basic needs, they're gonna be just too busy to go out and protest and try to, you know, fight for anything bigger for the
0: country. Just too basic too, too busy fighting for to survive, you know. It's rich agricultural land, so it it's amazing that people are starving. Well, that's that's been an issue that's been ongoing since the oil industry
1: started you know since we realized that we could get everything with oil the countryside was basically abandoned so we used to have really good coffee cacao production and cattle and all that got abandoned slowly because there's been no real investment you know and the. The bright minds of the time used to say we need to plant the oil in the sense we need to invest all this income that we're getting from oil in agriculture so when we don't have the oil anymore, we have something to rely upon. I just We didn't do the homework.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Jose Maranda. Jose is talking about his country of Venezuela and the conditions that forced him to leave how was that? That must have been really hard to have to leave the country, the the people that you know, your family is still there, some of your family? Yeah,
1: some of my family is there. Some of my family have left. I have family spread out all over the world, just like everybody else in Venezuela. Whoever was able to leave and find a job somewhere else did, and some that stay stay because, you know, they still felt a sense of responsibility with the business they have to keep people employed or because they're too old to leave or because, you know, they are too afraid to leave, they already retire and they have the few belongings that they depend on for retirement, they're too afraid to start all over in a, you know, without any, you know, with nothing. So right now you actually, you had a country that had a huge young population that had left. So now you have all, just all these senior citizens finding themselves without kids and grandkids because they're all gone. And in a lot of cases, these older seniors are immigrants themselves. That they they came to Venezuela escaping uh,
0: Franco or Pinochet or you name it. So the the three million people, which is what a tenth of the population, that have, have migrated left. right now. Yeah, and okay. a lot of those are young or people who had enough money to be able to get out of the country have gone. And like you said, yeah, so mostly
1: young, mostly young people, I would say. It's because there's no future. You know, when you find yourself that there's no future, you, that's a big one, right? There's just no, yeah. no hope. The crime is out of control. There's no punishment for any crime. The shortages of all the basic supplies is very serious.
0: So you had to leave your land. You had to leave your livestock, everything. When yeah,
1: you-, you know, at that point, nothing really mattered. At that point, it was like safety first, obviously, and I couldn't keep, you know,
0: my foreign wife in Venezuela
1: anymore either. Under yeah. those circumstances.
0: Did you feel like you were going to die that day or was... Oh, yeah.
1: Was it... Oh, yeah. You know, it was everything was put on the line. It was like, a, you know, you think about everything and you spray them, you know, not, none of the material stuff that they took matter at the moment. All you care is that, you know, the family was fine and... Yeah. Then you reevaluate everything, you know. It's just not worth it anymore to put them on on uh, such a harmful environment or such a dangerous environment you know. So
0: you came back? So
1: I was, you know, I, sh- I came back and started from nothing again. Yeah. Came back and, and at least we had the support of the people that we knew in Carbondale. The kids had some friends that they had met, you know, five years before. And so it wasn't totally foreign from them coming back to Colorado again.
0: But under those circumstances, was it hard on your family to, to recover from oh, that? Yeah. Because Yeah, yeah. well, was it was a hard to see
1: that We went from living at the ranch and having the kids, you know, hang out with me all day back and forth to having a full-time job and that was it. You know, the kids were homeschooled and now they went back to public school. So it was shocking to them, you know, the whole shift in in schedule and everything just got disrupted as how the dynamic of the family was.
0: Did you get depressed about it?
1: Oh, for years, yeah. I spent at least four years holding on to the thought of what we had lost, and you know, depressed of the situation in Venezuela in general, you know, because it seems to have had no end in sight, right? This, this, the government was is ki- being kidnapped by by international mafias. is what we have going on, and it's in a situation mm-hmm. that no is out of the hands of Venezuela. We have tried through all the democratic means to get rid of this dictator regime that we had. It's just been basically impossible. It's taking all these years, you know, ringing the bells to raise international awareness of what's happening in Venezuela as far as uh, human rights violations. I mean, the, the situation is so daring that some people consider, and rightfully so, that it's genocide because it's basically they're persecuting and running away anyone that doesn't think like they do. So it's a political genocide in a way. Um, so right now there's hundreds of uh, detains from the protests. So you got hundreds of people that are in jail just, just because they disagree with the government and they have raised their voice to disagree in legitimate protests. That is one of the rights under our Constitution. So they always play the card that they're being very democratic, that they like to talk, they like the dialogue, they always show the Constitution, you know, but they always manipulate it and they always cheat, there's no independence of power because they have both the the, the Supreme Court and the uh, the whole, what is called the election committee basically. What they have not been able to control is the National Assembly and they were not expecting what's happening right now.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories program. My interview today is with Jose Miranda. Jose is talking about conditions in his home country of Venezuela and the rise to power of Juan Guaidó. So what do you think the chances are of this, no, this what happened, young upstart, Guaidó? Juan Guaidó.
1: What happens now is they did not expect that this kid, that is a total new generation of politician.
0: He's in a very dangerous place. He is. But uh, he's not the
1: only one. I mean, there's several young kids of the same uh, statue, integrity, and uh, just desire to change Venezuela. He just, um, <clears throat> somebody said that. Uh, What happened to this kid is kind of like uh, winning a tiger on the lottery. Right? It's not something he wanted. Tiger, no cage. Right. So like very, very difficult position to be in, and he had to be, you know, very tough. I'm sure he's gone threats and intimidated or bribes and all kinds of things, but this kid is definitely determined to make things right, and he is— backed by the Constitution he's being backed by international community that is sick and tired of this clan of thieves taking advantage of uh, the region basically and in the name of not even the socialists are with them anymore you know they, they have ruined the name of socialism. So what worries me right now is that, that uh, the general public in the United States are really clueless as to what's going on. Of course at the first reaction, the natural reaction and it would be my natural reaction if I had no idea what's happening in Venezuela is hey, what are these guys gonna go do over there? Take advantage of the all because it's obvious that there's a huge amount of natural resources in Venezuela, which is exactly why Russia, China, China. Iran, Turkey are highly interested in and leaving this guy States. there. Right. And then I said, But these guys are saying, you know, leave Maduro there. Yeah, because they already have an agreement to extract a ton of oil and gold, right? And they already have invested a lot in order to have those contracts, right? So yeah, now it's, unfortunately, we have been put in a very terrible situation to deal with the devil in a way. So it's something that Juan Guaidó is going to have to do, probably deal with all these deals that have been promised to several different countries so that we can move on and forward. Because at the end of the day, the situation is so chaotic in Venezuela that, is not in the benefit of anybody because Russia and China will not able to extract oil or gold under these conditions because it's impossible to operate any business like this. So it's to their own personal selfish benefit and economic interest
0: to get rid of this guy too. So the, the, But the United States and China and Russia are in a, in a major standoff here. China well, and Russia have major interests. The United States... Uh, gets a fair amount of oil from from uh, Venezuela. So we, we, we definitely have an interest in trying to maintain some kind of sanity there. Yes,
1: I agree. We don't want the U.S. to go in there just to take advantage of the natural resources or to put another dictator there. No, nobody wants that. Venezuela doesn't want that. But Venezuela wants and needs help of their neighbor to get rid of these... International problem.
0: Yeah, true help, you know, not just coming in to take the resources that are there. So, yeah. And we're not
1: asking for much. We're just asking for a government of transition and real free elections.
0: It must be hard for you to watch this.
1: Well, it's more encouraging now. Now I feel very encouraged of what's happened. You know, it's like uh, you got to have the ups and downs, and this is like a terrible cleansing that we had to go through, you know, and a lot of lessons to be learned as a nation from this, but at least these guys are clear of a path to move forward and start solving some of the problems where the 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 dictators that we have right now are clueless as to, as to how to solve the issue because they're not interested.
0: It's going exactly like they planned it. So would you go back if things started to look better? You or know, that that desire of going
1: that? back and helping Venezuela kind of – came back again after seeing what's happening right now it kind of had had been dead on me for <laughs> a very long time but yeah. I, I feel very optimistic about the changes that are starting to take place right now definitely
0: but you've got a a whole life that you're building here you've introduced water buffalo can you talk about that your project sure. your passion
1: <clears throat> uh so after i came back um uh, in 2014 i came back in 2013 2014 um i came back to work at a cattle ranch and although i was working with cattle it still was not the same still was thinking about you know venezuela and all the losses of the last few years and then uh, colorado legislation changed to classify the water buffalo as a domestic species In the past, it was classified as an exotic species, just as the same as the African water buffalo. But the Asian water buffalo is a totally different species. You cannot even breed them, crossbreed
0: the African with the Asian water buffalo. How are they different? How is the Asian buffalo different than the...
1: African. Oh, well, the African water buffalo cannot really be domesticated. That's a different beast. The horns, yeah, <laughs> the horns are very different. The Asian water buffalo is it's the same you see in, in India and China. That is the the one that you have kind of the image of uh, the buffalo using to be to plow the rice fields, right? Or, right, right. Uh, so it gets used for work, for milk production, and for meat. All over the world, world is uh, uh, one of the number one relied upon domestic species. It's Just that the U.S. were kind of far behind on that one and it's because the imports of uh, water buffaloes is close. there were a few imports uh, in the 70s I think it was and that was about it so a few producers have some uh, large herds Uh, it's only in the last few years that uh, more people are starting to focus on breeding and training them for milk production which is really where they have the great advantage they have uh I call it the queen of milk is uh, pure white, it's thicker, more dense milk, and it's uh, higher in uh, calcium and vitamin A, um, and it ma- it's uh, better for making cheese. So you get more pounds of cheese per gallon of milk from a water buffalo than you do from regular cow. And uh, people that are lactose intolerant have no issue related with it, so...
0: Buffalo mozzarella. Yeah, the original where... mozzarella
1: is made out of water buffalo. Oh, really? So, Italy is really
0: big into breeding water buffaloes.
1: And nowadays, you find them in the UK, in Canada.
0: You, you seem to have a special relationship with them.
1: You, you know, that's uh, a yeah, special bond. It's kind of hard to, to break. You know, once you get accepted into the herd, you just kind of become a part of the herd forever. I, I say that the buffalo is like a cow with the brain of a horse. So, when you create a bond and attachment with them, it's more, you know, more profound. It's not like a cow that just cares to be fed, and that's about it. That's all the relationship they care f- to have with you, where the buffaloes are truly interested in hanging out with you, <laughs> following you around. Yeah. And it's sort of about the way that you you train them, right? It's sort of about the, the handling of the animal, because you could have the opposite too. You know, if so you stop handling these animals and just let them be kind of wild, it, you know, that's that's how they're going to be. So, they will take, they're really easy to train, let's put it that way. And that's why they get used for work in a lot of these countries.
0: So, what's your dream for your herd?
1: Well, the herd that I'm building is for dairy purposes. So, um, what I'm doing with my herd is also a different kind of training. So, very gentle handling where they want to be with you, they want to hang out, they come what you call them. So, I use. I like to call, say that I use the power of attraction instead of a, the power of pushing an animal. I'd rather them come to me instead of pushing them to where I want to go. I'd rather them follow me to where I, where we will go. The challenges here is uh, access to land. You know, land is very expensive. So I lease land and I have a mobile dairy, which is a trailer that I pull behind the truck and I live in the pasture where the cows are. I do rotational grazing, so I go from pasture to pasture. And this trailer has solar panels, so I can have my milk machine in there and I'll milk the animals, and it's enclosed, so when the weather is bad, I have a, a place that is a little protected from the elements to do the milking. And it's a way to avoid the high expenses of land ownership, the expenses of building a barn, and then along the way, I have found out that it has great benefits for the land, so you avoid erosion around the traditional milking barn, uh, reduce the amount of manure that gets built up, so that way you reduce the parasite load on the animals, so you have healthier animals, you have healthier soil, you have healthier milk. Rotational grazing with rotational milking part or following.
0: Where did the idea for uh, the mobile it dairy... Came out of,
1: it came out of the need. You know, I had uh, before the buffaloes were kind of legalized for 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 um commercial purposes in Colorado, I had was just a dairy cow. And I had that cow just out in the field with the rest of the of the herd where I worked at. And I had to mill that cow year round and yeah, in the middle of the winter when the weather is nasty, all I could like think about is I just want just a little trailer to, you know, pull with me out in the field, milk her before work and off we go. And then thinking about that, just slowly developed the idea of doing it with solar panels and putting the machine in there. And it just came, you know, was developed out of the need for something better to get the work done.
0: So are you producing cheese
1: yet? Just at home. Not not uh, for commercial yet. I, I need to have more animals for that. Right now, all the work that i done with the herd, I started with really young animals. So I could really train them for the kind of handling that I want to have. So most of those animals I actually got were bottle-fed because they come from herds that they're not used to that kind of handling. So got animals that were early wind and I finished bottle-feeding them so I can create that bond with those animals. And as I started to build up the herd that I have more of them already trained the way that I wanted, I added a few adult that were the ones that I had two calves of last year. This year I'm gonna have five. Next year will be nine, and probably in the year 2022 I'll have maybe 20 cows. And by then I'll have enough volume that I can have a cheese brand. Mm-hmm. It's just a very slow going process. Yeah, four stages. You know, first it's just building up, just a herd that that has the right uh, demeanor. You know, that can be handled easy and i'm also working on the genetic components so i have animals that i have bought from different herds in the u.s so i can have enough genetic diversity and i have more bulls that i need for the 15 cows that i have i have three bulls and that's also to have more genetic diversity since the beginning and the bulls that i have came from artificial insemination from semen from italy two of them and one from uh, a bull from brazil So that's the foundation of uh, something that is just going to take several years to build. But I know these animals, what they can do, and the quality of the milk and the cheese. And I already have a lot of interest from local restaurants that want to have the product. I'm just a few years away from being able to deliver. But it's a matter that it it has to grow at the proper scale, slow. Otherwise, it's just really hard to get those animals
0: trained for this method of production. It's not easy to move you off your dream.
1: No, and the
0: obstacles you've are big. Been, you, you've you've got to stay true. You've been moved <laughs> a few times.
1: Yeah, I have failed a few times. And every time I fail, I guess I learn something new. Yeah. yeah. This, I guess this is actually my, my third
0: uh, water buffalo ranch, you could say. Yeah, but it third. sounds like it's... Maybe the fourth, yeah, the third. It's it's pa- It's a passion and your persistence.
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's just I cannot let it go. You know the, the the need to be with these animals and the attachment with these animals is uh, something I just enjoy greatly. That's
0: part of been part of you since you were just a,
1: a boy. No, and I've been It's something I also like to share with my kids. You know, like I, I, this is a really healthy milk. You know, and having kids, the my boy that is uh, sixteen years old now. He grew up on the milk of the buffalo ranch that my dad sold back then. Then my daughter grew up on the milk of this buffalo ranch that we started when we last interview I started down there. And now I got a third kid on the way. I was going to grow up on the milk of these buffaloes in Colorado. Right. <laughs> so, yes, they also are part of the inspiration, too.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, buena suerte. Gracias. That was Jose Miranda. Two years ago, Jose and his wife, Erin Cusio, moved their family and their growing herd of water buffalo to a farm in Missouri where there's more room for their kids and their buffalo to grow. Thanks for listening.